Welcome back to The Pragmatic Investor, everyone. I am your host, James Ford, and I am joined today by Thomas, ex-ETF wholesaler turned Substack newsletter writer from Investor Snippets. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. All right. So I wanted to start a little bit with, uh, if you could please tell us a bit about your background. Um, I'm quite interested to understand a little bit better what an ETF wholesaler is. And I'd just love to know your journey a little bit in the financial sector and how you basically wound up uh, just writing this newsletter. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'll just briefly start with uh, my newsletter and how I kind of got into it. So right now um, I'm writing a newsletter, a daily newsletter called Investor Snippets. So essentially what it is, is really just um, uh, brief summaries and snippets, as the name suggests, mm -hmm. of, you know, different stories around markets, stocks, ETFs. Uh, you know, the whole point is just, you know, something that's like less than three minutes. So, you know, for, 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 you know, readers just to keep up with what's going on in the markets on a daily basis. So how I came across this idea or how I even started this newsletter was um, based on my history and my background as an ETF wholesaler, as you mentioned at the beginning. So I was previously an ETF wholesaler for about seven years at a U.S.-based uh, ETF provider called First Trust Portfolios. Um, and for, you know, some of the audience out there, they're not too familiar with what ETF wholesalers do. Um, I always use this analogy when I explain to people that's outside of the industry, which is think of pharmaceutical reps, mm -hmm. but this is for the fund industry, essentially. So what I do there is I promote ETFs, in-house products to financial advisors, portfolio managers, mm -hmm. and family offices, okay. uh, and really just to, you know, get an understanding of their portfolios and try to, you know, essentially just to see where our products can fit in, you know, their business and their portfolios. So mm -hmm. I came across this idea because on a daily basis, I look for, you know, sound bites. When I talk to advisors and portfolio managers every day, you know, I skim through a lot of headlines, go in, I have to know what's going on in the markets. And one day a friend of mine was asking me, he's like, you know what, like, why don't you put together some of the stuff that you read? Just, you know, snippets, put it down in bite-sized news and then, you know, just share it with people. Maybe someone would actually you know, appreciate and find it useful. So I, that's when I first came across, you know, think about starting a newsletter at that time. So I was like, well, I'm going to read through all the information every day. So why not put it together and just, you know, try starting newsletter and see if someone would be interested. And that's how I initially started with um, investor snippets. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I've become a recent subscriber and I can verify that very useful, you know, obviously a lot of information out there and it's very good to get a nice condensed table of view of that. Um, so I'd like to understand maybe a little bit better exactly, maybe what was your day like as an ETF wholesaler, just to get a little bit more background on there. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Day-to-day yeah. -day usually involves um, really, well, one, I have to keep up with, you know, what's going on in the markets, what's hot, what's mm -hmm. not. And two is really just arranging booking meetings with advisors. So they, each each wholesaler gets a given territory, similar to pharmaceutical rep, right? Mm -hmm. So within your territory, you're really just arranging your 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 week to week in terms of, you know, which area, which cities are going to be traveling uh, and try to stack up meetings through the day. You're usually looking at six to seven meetings a day um, mm -hmm. and really just each day you really just kind of split between booking meetings and also attending the meetings and keeping up with uh in terms of you know how, how the meetings went or some of the notes with advisors and um 
also, you know, I would say if I had to break it down, so say one third of the time is really booking meetings. The other third is really um, organizing your notes in terms of because every advisor is different in terms of how they run the portfolios, what they like, what they don't like, especially uh, from an ETF point of view. You know, not all of them use ETFs the same way. Like some of them really use it uh, uh, as, as their core in, in their business. And some, they really just kind of sprinkle around as a satellite. So, you know, it, it's really just to kind of, um, you know, kind of organized in terms of like how to segment your clients, your advisors and whatnot. And then, you know, the other third of the time, it's really uh, just really attending a meeting and then building relationships and doing a lot of events, uh, similar mm -hmm. to a lot of sales jobs in different industry, really right. just building that relationship. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And just to get a little bit of an understanding of your background, then do you have a finance background? Is that how you got into it? Or is it something maybe you just fell into a bit more uh, randomly? Sure, sure. I actually have a pretty interesting story to share here. So uh, I study financial services management in, uh, mm -hmm. in, in university here. And when I graduated, um, you know, I didn't know what wholesalers, ETF wholesalers are or fund wholesalers are because, you know, to a lot of people in the general public, they really don't know this role exists. Mm -hmm. um, so I first actually got in as a sales associate uh, for an advisory team uh, that here in, I'm based in Canada, here in downtown Toronto. And I was working for that team for about a year as an associate. Uh, it was really just cold calling, you know, just like into the Wall Streets or Wolf of Wall Streets, like the movies. You're really just pounding the phone, cold calling every single day, mm -hmm. trying to prospect. And as I kind of got in that role later on, I kind of got involved with helping the team with managing their portfolios, uh, their clients. And then that's when I kind of came in contact with uh, a lot of wholesalers coming in, trying to conduct meetings, presentations and whatnot. And I still remember around that time, I was about, I was in my early twenties at that time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was given a path, like I could pursue came up working with that team and with a branch manager at the time, you know, he, he actually offered you know, why don't you, uh, I mean, you could try start building a book yourself. Um, and you know, it's going to be hard. And I, I, I know how hard it could be because I was actually the one that's doing a lot of cold calling, trying to prospect, trying to bring in the mm -hmm. clients. So I was talking to, uh, the advisor I was working with at a time and he was like, Hey, you know, Tom, why don't you try, um, doing a meeting yourself? Cause usually I go with him and then he's the one that's kind of closing. And then I was like, sure, I'll try doing it myself and see what's it like if I actually try to close a client myself or actually try to build a book myself. So I still remember I, I went to my first meeting and the guy looked at me. I still remember opening the door. He looked at me up and down and he's like shaking his head. He's like, okay, come on in. And I know the next hour or so, whatever I talked about, he had no interest. And the reason, the reason, mm -hmm. because I look too young and I am too young. And then in, in the retail side, what I've noticed at a time is, you know, like a little bit of gray, a little bit of age speaks mm -hmm. a lot. Like no right. one's going to, especially we're talking about like high net worth individuals. They're not going to trust anyone with their money if they look too young, too inexperienced with the markets or, or at least look like they don't know or they just fresh out of school. Right. So, you know, at that time I was telling myself, okay, no way I'm going to be building a book at that age. You know, it's not something that I could work out at that time. I mean, mm -hmm. I could try and force it to happen, but it's going to be very difficult. So, you know, that's when I started seeing all these wholesalers coming. I was like, well, hey, maybe that's something I can pursue because, you know, I'm still in this industry. I'm still in sales, but, you know, I'm kind of more um, less on the retail side and your age 
is not going to matter as much. Mm. And that's how I kind of got into the wholesaling side of the industry. Mm. Very interesting. We, you, know, you talk about the cold calling and, you know, I kind of picture Leonardo DiCaprio in uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, you know, kind of. Right, right, right. <laughs> the... well, pretty much. They actually, so so here's something shocking. So when I got in that industry, when I was cold calling, it was in 2010, I think, 2010 or 2009, somewhere there. And they actually still have like a boiler room, like a boiler room where actually you see like eight to 10 people in a room. They're just pounding the phone, calling, calling, calling. And it's, 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 um, it's shocking because I actually didn't know until one month in, apparently everyone's calling the same list. So all these like brokers, they actually get the same list. You just buy off a list of, you know, all these like uh, CEOs, executives, doctors that, you know, they, they actually buy a list from the phone company and there, we're talking about like maybe like three or 4,000 names and you have eight or 10 cold callers. They're kind of just recycling the same list again mm. and again, and again. And I was like, well, no wonder these guys, you know, these guys are all pissed off when you call them. They get like right. at least like eight calls from, you know, the, maybe from like different rep or different cold caller, mm-hmm. but get like eight different calls about the same thing every single week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can, I can imagine how that would get annoying. I don't know. Maybe. At some point, there'll be a better way of doing it. AI will probably uh, take oh, that, care of I'm pretty sure AI is going to automate that for sure. <laughs> awesome. And just to be clear, so you've stopped doing that and now you're doing the investor snippets full-time. Full is that right? Yeah, I've been doing this full-time since last year. Awesome. Now, I'd like to get a little bit of insight into how you think about investing as someone who's kind of uh, been on the inside. Uh, yeah, just how do you think about managing your own money? I mean... Obviously, you dealt with ETFs. Uh, ETFs, for example, a vehicle that you use to like to pick your own stocks. What's your approach? Sure. Um, so for me, I'm actually very boring. Um, mm-hmm. I just hold a couple of ETFs, a couple of stocks. That's it. It's, it's actually very boring, very simple. And also, this is something that you know I learned later on. Uh, when mm-hmm. I got into industry, because part of the industry, I was like looking, I was like, wow, you know, people that work on the inside, like institutional traders and what they did might have, you know, they must have a very, you know, sophisticated portfolios. But actually, a lot of guys I talk to, their own personal portfolio is actually very plain and simple. It's really mm-hmm. just like maybe one or two like broad based equity ETFs, mm-hmm. uh, something that's like one niche ETFs on the side and, you know, a couple of good like blue chip stocks. That's it. It's actually pretty boring. I mean, uh, after, I mean, that's a, that's a interesting thing about being a ETF wholesaler, because you actually talk to so many financial advisors and portfolio managers across mm-hmm. the country, or at least within my territory, and you get to see how they all run their portfolios. And it's, um, eye opening to see that, you know, a lot of times, yeah, sure. The way they run the portfolio is different, but it's actually not as complex as you think. And mm-hmm. it's really at the end of the day, and this is just my personal investing philosophy right now too, which mm-hmm. is, I'm pretty sure like a lot of people heard this before, don't time the market. Right. Uh, sure, I keep up with the news, I keep up with what's going on with the market, you know, on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, maybe you make some adjustment to your portfolios, your holdings and whatnot. But in terms of like mm-hmm. timing it, like right now, for example, I'll just use, use right now. You know, everyone's talking about rest of this year. Now, S&P is up uh, 14, 15%. Same thing with NASDAQ is up over 30% already. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Past couple of days, it's been coming back down, and everyone's talking about, oh, you know, it's recession coming because everyone's been calling recession for the longest time. It's not coming, defying it. Mm-hmm. Now they're like, well, it looks looks like you know it might be coming soon. Is it end of this year? Is it early next year? No one knows. Mm-hmm. And you start seeing a lot of people in terms, you know, in terms of like um, at least you see ETF flows, like a lot of people kind of floating out of equity into equity, fixing them and whatnot. But myself, in terms of you know, investing philosophy, I believe is really just instead of timing the market, it's really just looking at the long term. It's really mm-hmm. just having your portfolio adjust in terms of um, what is your ideal target is mm-hmm. for the year. And this sounds like pretty old school, but a lot of advisors, like that's kind of how they pitch their clients too, which is you look at the next 20 years, your goal is, I don't know, like 8% a year, 9% a year. So your 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 plan is really just to adjust your portfolio to to ensure that you actually have that uh, rate of return every single year and you're good mm-hmm. to go, right? That that's really exactly what you're looking for. So you know, um, example like this year, the market is up already. And, you know, for those that are scared, then you know you, you can scale back and hedge your risk, and you know you, you can kind of move out of equities um kind of hedge your side but you know i'm 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 really um i'm really in in terms of because i see a lot of people kind of jumping in and out in and out in and out so Mm -hmm. so you know my philosophy is really just very simple just yeah keep it simple keep it allocated just make sure you just stick to the plan that you had initially that's all Mm -hmm. absolutely that you know that that makes a lot of sense kind of the way i see things as well you need to prepare for the long term, you know, within that, of course, you know, maybe there's certain sectors right. that you think could perform better over the next 20 years. And if, for example, certain countries I think might perform better, which might tilt my portfolio a little bit. And then within that, you know, you can, you can do trades, but you know, you've got to, exactly. you've got to know that what, what you're doing to that extent, you know, know that you're, you're kind of a kind of just playing, playing with fire a little bit, you know, it's not sure. quite so much investing, you know, now, um, so I want to obviously you got you have the pulse on the market because you follow it every day. So I want to uh, get your thoughts on some of the recent news. And in fact, I'm just looking here at your latest investor snippet. So maybe kind of go through a couple of the headlines and just gauge where you stand on some of these uh, issues of the day. So for example, I see here one of your in your last demo, uh, Fed officials see upside risk to inflation, possibly leading to more rate hikes. What do you think about the current outlook for inflation and what the Fed is doing with rates at the moment? Any thoughts there? Uh, my personal opinion. Uh, okay, in, in, in terms of rate hikes, I don't think there's going to be more to come. I mean, there, there's a lot of anticipation that, you know, because of the Fed minutes yesterday, um, it looks like the Fed is going to hike the rates even more because of how resilient the economy has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, I think even if they do, at most, at most, it's just going to be one more because this is just based on what you know they've been saying mm-hmm. in the past couple of months. They said they, they pretend, this was two months ago, back in uh, I think early June, where they anticipate two more rate hikes this year. They already did one last month, so potentially one more to come at most. Um, however, um, I really don't see, so in terms of inflation, so this is just my personal opinion. So, you know, the, the Fed's been so, so 
focus on getting back to that two percent target. But you know, right now it's already at three percent. Like I think it's like three point two on a yearly basis in July. Mm-hmm. Um, and from a very simple point of view, if the overall inflation is at three percent, the economy is still resilient. Retail sales is still up. Uh, you know, job growth is still great. Employment rate is still low. Isn't this like the most ideal situation already? Like historically right. speaking, right? I mean, historically <laughs> speaking, you know. Uh, inflation average is about 3% a year. So ideally, the current situation right now is actually pretty ideal already, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, uh, I, I personally think, you know, being too concerned or too too obsessed with getting that 2% uh, inflation target, it's it, it might be a little bit too um, over the edge. That's just me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I share a similar take for sure. I mean, I think that the Fed could be at risk of over-tightening. And we have to think that, you know, the you know the monetary policy has a lag effect, so you know we're, we're only now going to start feeling the effects of monetary policy right. just about now. So you know now is when the economy might start weakening, and you know might actually Fed might be at the risk of over tightening. Then, like you say, you know, we're pretty much at the at the objective. I mean, could inflation come spiral back out of control? Well, you know, there's some issue. Obviously, commodities have gone up a lot, but it seems a bit. I mean, I've talked about. Sticky at most, I was I would say there's maybe sticky disinflation where we don't quite come down to two percent so fast. But uh, like you say, what's what's the worst that could happen there, right? Right, 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 right. I agree. I agree, hundred percent. So mm-hmm. you know, like why why push it more when everything's looking great right now? I mean, especially the biggest recession concern that everyone's been mm-hmm. talking about right now. Right. Well, especially, you know, the, the trends, it's been changed from, you know, last year they say, oh, rate hikes, uh, you know, like GTP is going to drop, you know, sales going to drop, you know, job growth, everything's going to drop. Right. And this year, everything's been great. And there's still going to be voice that's saying, oh, recession is still coming. Why? Because you don't know when the economy is going to feel the full impact of the rate hikes. Mm -hmm. Right. That's been going on in the past year. So right. now everything is actually looking good. So this, you know, why not? Why why push it more? Why 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 push it more to see? Hey, let's see how 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 much more the economy can take before it starts collapsing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, like you said. It seems like sentiment is always a little bit behind. I mean, looking back a couple of weeks ago, everyone was already so so hyped up on the market that you know this <laughs> this style of kind of seemed predictable looking back. But it's interesting. I was actually looking. Um, listening to another podcast and I can't remember who it was anyway they mentioned for example you look back at uh, 2007 and actually you know even though like that period 2008 we now consider a recession you actually look for example at the second quarter then GDP was going up kind of like now two 2.3% so kind of that idea that you know even though you know the data right now is very strong we could technically already be in a recession or which we will right. find out later, right? Without knowing already. Right. To that extent, kind of and tying this in with the next uh, headline which you had, which was talking about the one trillion in U.S. credit card debt, and that is kind of, and I, I've seen kind of a uh, differing information on this because, and I can't quite get a grasp because you see charts like that. Obviously, debt's very high. You know, uh, mortgage rates are really high up, but then at the same time, I've seen some. Some charts that suggest that you know uh, some stuff like excess savings is going to run out. Headlines like that. But then other ideas that, you know, saying actually, no, households have a lot of cash. Um, yeah, how do you feel about that? You know, the idea of, you know, all the debt that's going around and the general uh, health of the uh, U.S. household, let's say. 
Uh, honestly, personally, I don't have too big of an opinion on this. The reason I actually shared that article because I've been seeing a lot of you know bearish you know news in terms of at least this whole sentiment, right? In terms of like you know, sure, there's the economic data that's been looking great in the past you know mm -hmm. couple of months. But there's also the other side of the story where they say, oh, well, look at the debt level has been, you know, going up every single day. And, you know, that's why we're going to see a recession. And the main reason I, I just want to share that article is just to show like, well, you know, there's always two sides to a story. Like whatever, you know, like debt, for example, like credit card debts in general, like a lot of people say, well, it's bad. Look, it's it, it's reaching record high again, 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 again. But at the same time, if you think about it, well, yeah, it is. And it's still not collapsing, at least at this point. I don't know, you know what's going to happen a year from now or maybe even later this year. But at least at this point, you know, they've been saying debt's been racking up every single month this year and it still hasn't collapsed. Why? Well, I saw that article is pretty interesting, which is, well, income has been going up, right? Assets is still going up. And mm -hmm. what's interesting, which was not mentioned in... Um, in that article, which is um, something I saw a couple of weeks ago, on at the same time when all these debts are at record high, what else is at record high? Which is assets in uh, money market funds. Mm -hmm. So that's actually been getting at a record high level. Like mm -hmm. I've been seeing on headlines when debts are reaching record high. Same thing with money market funds, right? So if that's the case, so you know where, where's the money coming from, right? Like so, those mm -hmm. money is still stacking up. So. In that sense, like following that article, you know, for 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 people that didn't read that article or are not familiar with uh, the the angle they're putting in, which is where you know, sure, debt level is getting high, but so is income or, or assets level. That's kind of kind of kind of you know, kind of kind of blending in. So that's why you know you're you're you haven't seen like all these debts collapsing yet because you know people mm -hmm. are still having enough assets and income on that level. But you know, in the long term, is that going to be a problem? Probably. Um, but at, the, for, at least for the time being, if there's still assets and income in the whole economy that's kind of circling around, mm -hmm. uh, then I really don't see that as a big issue in the near term. And that's right. just my personal opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, one trillion is just a number. What really exactly. we should be interested in is like the proportion, right? Yeah, okay, but. We have to put things into context, right? I mean, you know, we've, we've been printing money the last few years, we've been giving money away, and all that's also in the economy, right? So there's a lot of cash, you know, asset values. So in proportion, if you look at the, you know, let's say maybe the financial ratios actually don't look quite as bad as that headline number of uh, a trillion, which is still a lot. It's still, um, it's still a lot, but but yeah, like I said, it's like, at the end of the day, is is it's just a number. So, and, mm -hmm. and, and this is just one thing I also learned from writing uh, my, my newsletter, Investor Snippets, which is, you know, and this is how I kind of created my, the articles that's in my newsletter, which is, you know, a lot of these medias, their headlines, I mean, they're, they're just there to kind of get attention, right? And I'm pretty sure you mm -hmm. notice it too, like all of these headlines, they, I want to say they exaggerate, but they purposely use like certain words just to, you know, make it, make it, make it way more appealing just to get the attention. And then that's why, you know, a trillion dollar. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. But at the end of the day, it's really just a number at the same time. Right. So. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I know that very well. I mean, I, I write articles for seeking alpha and, you know, obviously uh, getting, right. getting people to engage is important and, you know, some certain titles might, might do that a bit better, you know? Um, right. Speaking of uh, headlines, the next one I want to talk about, Quite interesting because kind of a sell the news, if you will, because uh, we saw that Coinbase 
recently got approval to uh, offer crypto futures trading in the US. And as we talk about this, I mean, I just saw this, you know, before I logged on, you know, I was I was on the road and we've had uh, huge moves in crypto, Bitcoin and Ethereum down six, seven percent. Now, I know you mentioned, um, you know, you don't follow crypto too much, but uh, I don't know, I'd love to hear your thoughts at, at the very least on uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Is it something that's even worth owning just for diversification purposes? Yeah. Uh, personally, crypto-wise, um, I don't... Personally, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of the altcoins myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, for sure. I, I, I tell, you know, even people around me, um, if you can even squeeze out like a small allocation, just invest a little mm-hmm. bit in it. You don't know. I mean, I mean, the way I see it is, I mean, I've heard so many side of an argument, like why crypto is great and why crypto is not going anywhere. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's still a huge demand for it. And I've been seeing, you know, the reason I believe in the long term, it's crypto is here to stay. I, I personally think so. Like digital currency is here to stay. And if they're going to stay, like usually the biggest like market movers right now, which is like Bitcoin, Ethereum chances are they're going to stay with it. Now, all you know, there's like thousands of altcoins out there. Are mm-hmm. they going to still be around like, I don't know, like five years, six years, seven years later? God knows, right? Mm-hmm. But then, you know, the major ones, Bitcoin, Ethereum, yes, 100%. I personally have a little bit of uh, money invested in it too. And I personally think that it's really going to here to stay because I'm seeing it, like I, that's when, when I noticed what, what happened was, um, I notice a lot of banks and institutions start taking it seriously. So uh, I don't know if you saw this. So BlackRock, um, they've already been expanding into the crypto space themselves. Uh, not specifically, well, they they did they did file for a Bitcoin ETF per se, like actually spot Bitcoin ETF. But mm-hmm. in, in institutional level, they already have like a, a their own set of team where they service institutional institutional clients. In terms of investing in the crypto space or specifically in you know digital currencies and whatnot and you know they're not the only one i've seen a lot of you know banks in canada and us across like north america they're slowly adapting and moving towards the space uh and same thing with even like some pensions uh out there that i've seen and when you have all these massive institutional channels it's kind of you know getting themselves involved in this space that's mm-hmm. when you know uh, it, it, it somehow is going to stay. And the reason I say why it's going to stay is because they're going to have all these like massive assets from that level. That's kind of, kind of keep on pushing this market higher and higher and higher. So, you know, to wrap it up, uh, yeah, personally, I, I think digital currency, it's, it's here to stay. And then Bitcoin, Ethereum, short term, who knows, right? Like, you know, you can drop like, you know, like 15, 20%. And then, you know, a week later or a month later is back to the same level, but Point is, in the long term, I think that it's uh, it's a worthwhile investment to kind of have in your portfolio. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, well summarized. And just to get an idea, then, would you say would you subscribe to the idea of Bitcoin kind of being like uh, digital gold? Sure. Yeah, I, I would. Um, I mean, at, at the end of the day, um, I'm, I'm not going to get into too much detail about you know the history of gold and gold standard whatnot, mm-hmm. but in a very basic concept of what gold is, is really just uh, a storage of value that, you know, a lot of people mm-hmm. believed in. 
uh, since long, long, long time ago, right? They just believed in it. There's enough people believe in gold and that's why the value still holds there. And then it's still today is still there, mm -hmm. right? If you apply the same concept to Bitcoin, it is a digital version, like a digital version of gold, which is there's that belief that the value is still there by, by, you know, there's enough demand that believe the value is in Bitcoin. So in that sense, then yeah, it is equivalent of a today's day of a, a digital version of gold. I personally believe that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely on the same page there, you know, big proponent of gold myself. I happily call myself a bit of a gold bug. Now, the next headline you bring up, of course, this has been the topic of the year, which is AI. And you mentioned in your latest uh, newsletter that NVIDIA is going to be reporting earnings soon, uh, next Wednesday. So yeah, kind of um, thoughts on AI. I mean, have, have have we run too far? Is this is this crazy? This kind of a rally we've seen in AI uh, or is, you know, are we just the beginning, you know, is this the dot-com crash or are we riding the next wave up? Right. So the way I like to see it is, I mean, a lot of people like to compare like AI, like you said, to, you know, the dot-com bubble back in, you know, the late nineties. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, okay. So if you even look at a dot-com bubble, like sure it did crash, but you know, the whole concept of, you know, like, you know, of internet and, you know, you know, web page and websites and, you know, that generation of technology. Mm -hmm. Sure, it it did collapse, but you know, in the long run, look what happened, right? Like tech yeah. actually took over, especially internet. You know, um, this is actually the kind of off track, but you know, there's actually an internet ETF when I was working as an ETF wholesaler, where I think from the mid two thousands up to like I think you know twenty eighteen, it was literally the best returned ETF ever because the internet space itself just you know skyrocketed. Right. So, you know, back to, you know, dot com bubble, sure, it collapsed big time. Right. But then look at the 20 years afterwards. Right. It did phenomenal. It's great because why? It's here to stay. So, AI, you know, I, again, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It might, you know, crash this year for all we know. Because, you know, everyone talk about, uh, you know, AI, ChatGPT, or whatnot. And, and it, it might actually be a bubble that's going to pop this year, next year. Who knows? But in the long term, I believe this is like, uh, you know, uh, this is one of those technologies that's here to stay for sure. Right. Mm -hmm. So from an investing point of view, like, just like, you know, what I mentioned earlier, uh, if you believe this is going to be something here to stay in the long term, then mm -hmm. it's worthwhile to kind of invest or have money in. So mm -hmm. same thing with AI. So in the long term, I'm pretty confident it's here to stay and it's, it, you know, the, the, the world is going to adapt to it somehow. I mean, you can apply to multiple places, multiple industries. So it's going to be here to stay. The question is, you know, how bumpy is the ride going to be as it goes up? Right. Right. So, so yeah, my personal view on AI is long-term, it's going to be great. Short-term, I don't know. It might be a little bumpy ride. It might actually a crash here and there, whatnot. Mm -hmm. But over long-term, it should be fine. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people, at least myself, see it in a similar way. I don't know if you're familiar with this thing called the Gardner hype cycle. Right, right. Yeah. Basically, it kind of defines that idea, right? That, you know, everyone is now kind of you know, at the peak of expectations. And, you know, we're all kind of, as investors, trying to predict what the AI is going to do. But, you know, reality isn't quite there yet, right? We're not, we're not quite, you know, right. at, the, at the place where a lot of people are imagining. And, you know, there's 
it's going to basically be a bit of um i think they call it the trial of desperation and then it's going to kind of right. stabilize in a similar way to the internet really because you know obviously the dot-com bubble burst and people were saying you know ah, this internet thing's just a fad and you know obviously right. we know and look we what know, happened people. afterwards right right exactly so absolutely that makes a lot of sense and now this last headline is actually one i also shared on twitter i thought it was quite interesting um you talk about huge inflows to China ETF spawn speculation about state buying. Kind of pretty, uh, pretty interesting, wild idea there. Uh, any thoughts? Uh, okay, per uh, I personally, uh, I don't think it's speculation. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure state is involved with uh, pumping mm -hmm. ETFs uh, in mm -hmm. terms of uh, at least pumping assets into it, just to you know boost the whole, um, the whole country's sentiment right because you mm -hmm. know as you know like china right now it's in a very downward spiral with a lot of their data in terms of from everything from import export mm -hmm. uh you know employment uh uh you know inflation every day everything is just going in a downward spiral right now right so in terms of you know boosting the overall investor and also the country's sentiment then yeah would they put assets in etfs just to make it look good sure i mean just yesterday um there's another headline that been confirmed where um, the government's been asked several investment funds in China to stop liquidating assets because they don't want too much assets been bleed like bleed out yeah. of the funds the country and whatnot because yeah. um, a lot of foreign investors have been you know, rapidly like taking money out of the country already right uh, I think today I saw somewhere I think uh, I think it's like Shanghai Stock Exchange where they're experiencing a ninth executive, like consecutive days where, you know, there's like assets from foreign traders that's been kind of redeeming and redeeming and redeeming and redeeming. So, you know, my thoughts on it and, you know, in terms of in China, I, this is just me personally, because from what I've seen, I've read in the past, like, you know, decade, um, it's really not too far-fetched where, you know, government gets involved in terms of, you know, just to maintain uh, uh, you know, just to calm the market where they would tell, you know, investment funds, they would tell uh, the market or traders or businesses to actually kind of comply in terms of, you know, the government's goals. So, you know, I really don't think it's much of a speculation and it's really not too mm -hmm. far-fetched. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think it actually seems pretty normal. That's something that Chinese government would do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, where do you draw the line? They, they might as well just start making up the GDP data as well, right? They, they could also do that. Well, I think they actually did uh, last year. I remember uh, during their massive lockdown last year when, you know, a lot of people were criticizing how, you know, the whole world has been opened up already, but their economy is still in mm -hmm. a lockdown. And I think it was like last, I don't remember, I think it was like last summer where they had a GDP of like a 3% growth. And literally I was looking at it. I was like, how? Like the whole country's locked down. There's like no, no car moving, no oil, nothing. And your GDP still grew by three percent. Like how? Like how that, that came out of thin air? And obviously, right. it's it's like a made up GDP. And and again, it's not far fetched because this again, this is just me being biased because um, I'm I'm Chinese myself, and okay. you know I've always been exposed since at a young age. Like you know, in China, in terms of you know financial statements can be made up. A lot of stuff can be made up in that country, right? So again, mm -hmm. like the headline to me is the. It, doesn't seem too far-fetched right yeah absolutely obviously you know investing in chinese stocks kind of you could say controversial a lot of investors have been burned but 
if the state is backing it, I mean, is there is there a trade to be made here? Is it is it a good time to buy Chinese stocks? I mean, uh, per, okay, this is just my my opinion on it, which is uh, right now, sure, uh, government would would you know they're backing it uh, in the short term. Would it come back up? Maybe, yeah. Who 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 knows, right? Maybe maybe in the next couple of months it, it might come back. Up. I mean, Al, uh, Alibaba, it's been like you know getting getting mm-hmm. punished really hard in the past year. It's been kind of showing some signs of life. Mm-hmm. So in the near term, uh, is it worthwhile? Sure. In the long term, when I say long term, I'm just talking about like the next like maybe even four or five years, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of believers sees like the whole revival story whole economy oh you know china especially this year right because they say you know china they reopened you know the economy is gonna you know it's gonna skyrocket because you know they're gonna start taking all these like consume all these oils all these businesses and a lot of times you know i think they're just looking at what happened in china in the last like decade and how fast it has grown and they're they're picturing oh so that growth can actually repeat itself in the next decade. But I don't think that would be the case anymore because I think China's also, at least at this moment, I think based on the data that I've seen, um, it's already been peaked or near peaked. It's similar to mm-hmm. how like Japan was actually the second largest economy yeah. back in the nineties. Mm-hmm. I really think China's kind of repeating the same history right now um, in terms of like, for example, population is declining over mm-hmm. there. Uh, investment, it's also declining from for, like foreign investments across the globe. It's been declining there. Um, so in the long term, I really don't think it can repeat the same growth that you see in the last 10 years. Right. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And like you say, definitely, there's a that very good comparison with, you know, the population. I mean, is that, I think they say, they're saying that the population in China is just about peaked, right? It's going to start declining soon. It, oh, it's already, it's already decreasing, right? And then India already surpassed it. Right, exactly. And speaking of which, then, now, I know that you mentioned at the beginning that you're pretty simple in terms of your investing, but, you know, looking ahead, long-term, five, ten years, any particular areas that you're interested in, any sectors or geographies, and then to that extent also maybe any particular names you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, yeah, I'm – so for myself, so when I first started building my own investments, uh, I was obviously taught um, – by the S&P 500, right? That's that's like the whole, the, the mm-hmm. very traditional way of investing just by S&P 500 and, you know, don't look back when you have money, just keep adding it. I have it myself too, um, but I actually have a lot more in tech, spe- you know, specifically uh, in, uh, you know, QQQ, the NASDAQ 100. I believe, you know, tech is going to be a main driver in the next, mm-hmm. you know, decade or so for sure. Because, you know, back to my point earlier, if AI is going to be here to stay, tech is going to, you know, go up along with it. So personally, mm-hmm. I favor tech over the typical, you know, S&P 500 broad base in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of um, other allocation, I would put, you know, a little bit of dividends, like some, if you if you have some good dividend stocks, sure. I personally, um, JEPI, I'm not sure you're familiar with them, is the JP Morgan, the premium income. Uh, they okay. have a, yeah, so that, that that's something I kind of hold on the side. It's just for income. It's like a cover cost strategy. Right. Um, and then outside of U.S., uh, I have a little bit of international, but more really towards um, 
the UK. Uh, okay. I, I, I know, you know, UK has been taking a, a beating this year as well. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, their inflation, uh, the rate hikes and whatnot. But, um, you know, if I had to choose like a recovery story between mm-hmm. China and say the UK or Europe okay. in general, mm-hmm. I would probably put money in Europe versus, you know, China. I think Europe mm-hmm. has a better potential, you know, in the long run, at least, uh, the next like four years or so in terms of like having a bit of a recovery because it's been lagging, you know, the, the S&P 500 or U.S. economy for a while already. And so mm-hmm. um, I think in, in terms of uh, at least the next like midterm, uh, I see some potential there. So I actually have a little bit of a European you know, ETFs and equities mm-hmm. in my portfolio as well. Absolutely. Very interesting. Like you say, you know, U.S. equities have definitely been outperforming the last decade, even longer. So, you know, maybe it's time for international equities. That's, something I've been talking about for a while now. Uh, to that extent, what about anything in the Southeast Asia kind of area, India, uh, Singapore, Indonesia, those kind of areas which kind of promise a bit more high growth without right. maybe kind of the problems associated with China? Sure, sure. And this is actually something interesting I came across uh, just a couple of weeks ago, which is emerging markets. So, you know, as you mentioned, you know, U.S. been, you know, leading in terms of growth for the past, like, over 10 years already. And, Emerging markets been kind of going by cycles. So if you look at the early 2000 to 2010, it did phenomenal. It actually outperformed the U.S. And mm-hmm. up until like 2010 to like uh, 2020, it's been underperforming huge, big time, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's this like uh, side of the story where a lot of people believe, well, now's the time for emerging market to kind of come back in terms, in terms of growth. And, you know, that's how the cycle works. But... Personally, I think in in terms of emerging markets, I would probably put my money in India specifically in terms of the mm-hmm. whole emerging markets, especially yeah. from an invest, say ETFs or fund point of view. Because if you mm-hmm. look at any ETFs in emerging markets, the biggest, biggest holding is always going to be China. China yeah. is probably going to be like 40% of the entire emerging mm-hmm. market holdings yeah. right now in, in, in terms of you know their allocation. So if you're going to buy emerging markets, uh, I, I would probably just focus on India instead. Uh, one, because one, you know, if you buy emerging markets, you're really just overly concentrated in China, which is I'm not in favor of. Two, um, you, know, you know, a lot of people have been saying India is going to be the second China. I, I really do think China, uh, sorry, India in the next like 10 years or so, it's really going to replace China to be the second strongest economy. Uh, mm-hmm. In terms of, you can see all these like factories, tech factories have been kind of moving through India. So I see a lot of growth potential there. Population there, it's the largest right now in the world. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I would say if you were to put money in, you know, Southeast Asia, emerging market, whatnot, I would just really just focus on India specifically myself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Some, some good points there. And, you know, kind of, kind of agree with, with, with a lot of what you said there. So Thomas, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Before we uh, log off, um, does everyone know, once again, obviously you're on investorsnippets.com. Anywhere else uh, people can find you on the internet? Uh, Sure, yeah. So yeah, newsletter, Investor Snippets. Uh, You can also find me on Twitter. Um, It's uh, T-L-E-E-1228 at Twitter. Um, I'm not pretty active on social but besides that and yeah that's pretty much it awesome well once again thank you so much for coming on sharing your story sharing your thoughts and you know congrats on the newsletter it's really great uh you know i've been looking at it every day 
for the past few weeks. Um, so thoroughly enjoying it. And, you know, hope we can do this again sometime. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for coming on, Thomas. Thank you. Thank you once again for listening to this conversation. If you're still around, I take it that you enjoyed it. So I'd like to once again remind you that you have the option to receive more of my content if you subscribe on Spotify. I do a weekly weekend video where I cover everything that's happened throughout the week, giving actionable investment ideas, covering the macro, looking at charts, and I put those out every weekend. You can subscribe directly on Spotify. Alternatively, you can also follow me on Substack. There's plenty of free content there. And for subscribers, there are also available the same weekly videos that I just mentioned and also weekly macro newsletter. So around Tuesday, Wednesday, I also put out a macro newsletter where I write about everything that has happened. And again, you know, investment ideas, technical analysis and all that good stuff. So you can go ahead, and check out my Substack on the description. And that's all. Thank you very much.